If you have a Bible, I'd love to look with you this morning in the, math, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We'll look at the last few verses of this chapter together, 43 through 48. Uh, I'd remind you that this summer, especially if you're just visiting with us, we are rummaging through the Sermon on the Mount, which is covered in Matthew 5 through 7. We're spending our time just looking at different passages and places in this sermon that Jesus gives to us and records for us. Um, remember, we started at the end. So we started our series looking at chapter 7, verses 13 through 29, because it's there that we discover the real reason why Jesus wrote all these things, and that is that he's after the foundation of our lives. He is exposing what is there, and he is saying that the only way to build our life is on the sure foundation of Jesus, of him, the rock. We shouldn't build our lives on anything other than Christ. Then we looked at the middle, then we, excuse me, then we went back to the beginning and looked at chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And so now the last few weeks, we've kind of been in the, in the heart of Jesus' sermon, chapter 5, 17 through chapter 7, verse 12. So we're in the middle of that section this morning. And we are being reminded again and again, Jesus is the purpose of the scriptures. He is on every page in every story. And everything in the scripture and everything that he's talking about in this sermon is to point our lives to him. So let's listen to this, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. This comes from the very mouth of our Savior. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you bear witness in our lives through this word, that you take what is there, what we have read, and you explain it to us and apply it to our lives, and we thank you for that. Heavenly Father, you have given us this entire book so that we might know of your great love for us and what you have done And the good news that you proclaim, the good news that's found in Jesus, what you have done in Christ for us. So would you help us to think about our lives in light of what you say, Jesus, in light of what you're doing in our lives, Holy Spirit, all so that we can live by your grace and love. We pray this for your glory. We pray it for our good. Amen. If you've been here for a few weeks as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, have you felt like Jesus is pushing on you a little bit? It's kind of hard to read these verses and read these chapters and not feel like Jesus is is pushing on us, that he's not messing with our lives a little bit, that he's not poking around at the foundation of who we really are and what we really build our lives on every single day. And that is absolutely by design. Jesus is absolutely doing that. 
And if you haven't been here for a number of weeks and you're just visiting or just thinking about or just here for the first time, let me tell you, just so you know on the front end, no one escapes this sermon, okay? No one. So if you're coming here and you hear these words this morning, you think, wow, that was kind of, you know, right between the eyes. That was, that was hard. No one escapes this stuff. No one. None of us have escaped anything that Jesus has said so far. And that's not going to stop today. Uh, no one is going to be unscathed. And remember, I'm saying this because we have such a tendency to hear the Sermon on the Mount and think, oh, this is what Jesus says, therefore this is what I need to do to be a good person. And that's not what Jesus is driving at. And we ought not hear the words of Christ and think, well, I guess I'm supposed to be utterly passive and do nothing. That's not what Jesus is saying either. He's writing these words so that we would understand more and more what it means to put on Christ, what it means to put on Jesus every day in our jobs, through our relationships at home, he wants us to put on who he is. God wants us to put on Christ. Well, that said, let's dive right in. You can see in your bulletin we got two points this morning, something visible and something beyond. If we start off with the first phrase that Jesus says and work our way through that, we are, we are receiving from Jesus something visible. This is how he wants us to live. This is how he wants his followers to live. This is what he says, the first part. Listen to this in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He begins right there. You've heard this. Matter of fact, the first part of that statement, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, the first part, you shall love your neighbor, is directly taken from God's word. You can find it all the way back in the book of Leviticus. Want to get more specific? You can find it in chapter 19. Jesus says, you have heard this. You have heard that you're supposed to love your neighbor. You see, Jesus says that because he knows that in the time in which he was writing in the first century, it was completely common. It was normal for people to think this. My neighbor is someone that is part of my own people. The neighbor is someone that thinks like I do, that looks like I do. My neighbor is someone who is just like me. That's what people thought. That was their assumption when they heard love their neighbor. What they thought was, so I need to love people that are just like me. And then this deduction or this conclusion was drawn. So if I'm supposed to love people that are just like me and act like me and think like me and live like me, if that's the way I'm supposed to live, then it must be okay to hate those that aren't like me. It must be okay to hate people that aren't like me and even consider them enemies. You see, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, what Jesus is highlighting is the first part is directly from God. But hating our enemies was actually completely made up. It was a made up concept. It's what people added to 
something that God said. As a matter of fact, if we go back and read Leviticus 19 where God says specifically to love your neighbor, just a few verses after that is explicitly stated, I think it's around verse 33 or 34 of chapter 19, God explicitly says that you are to love the alien and the stranger and the foreigner, people not like us. And he even says you're supposed to love people that are aliens and strangers the way that you love yourself. But that had all been forgotten. Or maybe that had all been ignored. Or maybe that had been just flat out rejected because it was so much easier to just be around people that were the same, thought the same, and looked the same. Therefore, it was easy to love them and to do swell then I can hate those who aren't like us, who aren't like me. See, Jesus then comes immediately back. Look at the next verse. But I say to you, you've heard this, and it's a kind of a half-truth. It's actually an untruth. You've heard that, but, but what I say to you is love your enemies. Look at verse 44. And pray for those who persecute you. It's very clear. This is how Jesus wants us to visibly live. Love our neighbors, love our enemies, and pray. It's clear. It's not much to wonder about here. It's direct. It's obvious. This is the way that his people should live. And I want you to know that when Jesus continues to talk here, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, verse 45 and following, Jesus is not saying that if you love your enemies, it will make you acceptable to God. That's not what he's saying. Again, he's not saying, do this and you will find favor with God. Loving our enemies and praying for people who persecute us evidences that we are accepted by God. And if that doesn't make sense, just hold on to it. We'll come back to it. Put a pin in there. You see, to follow Jesus... To follow the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't mean that Jesus becomes your boss man. The whole point of Christianity is not that now you have a job. Do it and produce and you will get promoted. That's not the whole thing. That's not what Christianity is. That's not what it means to follow Christ. And because we've covered this a few times, I think it's important to keep bringing it up because so many of us have grown up in situations in which we have heard the Bible misrepresented. We've heard Christianity and the message of Christianity misrepresented. So I want to give you a quick diagnosis, another one, that indicates if you have heard a counterfeit presentation of Christianity. So that means you have to think back through. Whatever sermons you've heard, whatever Christian books you've read, whatever Bible studies you've been in, you have to think about those and what I'm about to say. Because this will help you, I hope, diagnose if you have heard a counterfeit. So if you have ever heard messages or read books or been in Bible studies in which this is the message that was communicated, it's a counterfeit. Here it is. If you are totally devoted to God, he will use you. What we naturally hear when someone is teaching us, that, what we naturally hear is this. I'm not totally devoted to God. 
so he can't use me. And then we make the deduction of this. Therefore, I need to get totally devoted to God. Sound familiar? Probably in that. You've probably heard that. It may be deeper in you than you could ever imagine, ever imagine. Saying that is counterfeit. That's not the true message of Christianity at all. It's not that Jesus is giving us a job description, then we go do it and we produce, and then we earn favor with God, a.k.a. we become wholly devoted to God, and somehow, mysteriously, whenever that actually happens and we do something, then God rewards us. It's not the message at all. It's not the message that Jesus is saying. It's not the message of the Bible at all. Jesus is saying, if you look at the verses closely, you already have God as your Father, He's saying that we evidence the fact that God is our Father by loving our enemies. We evidence that we have God as our Father by praying for those. We evidence that God is our Father by loving our neighbor. Jesus says you already have God as your Father. If your house is built on the foundation of who I am, Jesus says, you have God as your Father. Jesus, you see, is actually asking us to do something that the Father already does all the time. Look how Jesus just seamlessly slides this in there. Look at verse 45, right in the middle. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you make the connection? Jesus saying, love your neighbor, love your enemy, pray for those, just as your father puts the sun in the sky, and it rises on those who love him and dislike him every day. Just like God sends rain, and he sends rain on those who are justified before him and right with him and those who are not. Jesus is saying when you love your enemies and when you pray for them, what is going on is you are evidencing what God is already doing every day. That thing that we call weather, you know, Sun in the sky, seeing it cloudy or not, rain today or not. Jesus says that's evidence of God's love. Jesus is saying God causes both of those to fall on those who love him and those who do not. Therefore, we have to love our enemies. Because in doing that, we're evidencing God and his love in greater and greater detail. See, he's saying Act like your father. He's saying, act like the one who loves you. Now, maybe it's important here to think specifically about application. And just think for a minute about how in the world can we implement this? How in the world can we do this? And maybe we just start here. Jesus is saying, I want you as my people to have a loving disposition to all people. Jesus is saying, I want you as my people to have an open heart toward others. He's saying, I want you to pursue people. He's saying, keep your heart open to others. And maybe it's important for us to think about as we live our lives, As we get older, are we just spending our life withdrawing into smaller and smaller circles 
so that we won't be hurt? Do we just spend our time withdrawing into smaller and smaller circles so that nobody can wrong us or we feel as though we don't have to be vulnerable anymore? Jesus is saying, don't live like that. The trajectory of our lives should not be smaller and smaller circles. The trajectory of our lives is not that we can avoid hurt and vulnerability by just having a tighter and tighter group of friends. You remember a couple weeks ago when we said uh, that that there was a man that ministered several hundred years ago who made this statement, the seeds of every known sin reside within my heart. Remember this? It's a powerful statement. He was acknowledging that the seeds of every conceivable sin live within him. Amazing statement of truth and humility. You know what? Maybe we would do well to think about that. Maybe we would do well to think about that deeply. Because it's one thing to understand that statement is true. It's another thing to actually believe that it's true. And it's completely another thing altogether to live with that kind of disposition, isn't it? We can say the seed of every known sin resides within my heart. I can say that. But do I actually believe it? And then do I actually live with that kind of disposition? It's made me think a lot about how to connect all kinds of sins that I see all the time and make sure that I'm connecting the sins that I see that others struggle with with my own. Otherwise, I naturally am going to think, well, these sins are worse than these others. Or surely I'm not that bad because I'm not doing that. If I really believe that the seeds of every known sin are within my heart, then I ought to do some thinking about that, right? So let me tell you some things that I've been chewing on. Because at rock bottom, self-centeredness and pride affects everything. The reason why Kim Jong-un and our president throw their weight around and want to rule the world it's the same reason why I want to dominate my job. Now I want to dominate in my job. Dominate in my work. Selfishness and pride, isn't it? Seeds of every known sin are within my heart. The reason why the Kardashians are fighting and strategizing to stay in the public eye, and if you need me to make it more relative here, Mr. Beast, The reason why there's this constant fighting and strategizing to stay in the public eye is the same reason why I want all kinds of likes and retweets and positive comments and approvals on my social media. Selfishness and pride, isn't it? That's why most of my life I have to fight against being involved in that. The reason people want to build their identity around sexuality is why we want to build our identity around skills, our accomplishments, our work ethics, our gifting. It's because of selfishness and pride, right? 
See, the follower of Jesus is supposed to have this mindset. I'm not much different than the people around me. I'm not much different than the people around me. And therefore, why should I think I'm so important? I'm a sinner saved by grace, and the grace of God takes away my need and want for ultimate approval to come from others, whether it's their honor or to find worth in what others say. Ultimately, grace frees us to love people. Grace frees us to pursue our enemies. Because we're not really much different. So who are our enemies? Who are your enemies? Maybe one thing you can do in thinking about that is just thinking about where is it that you get really, really worked up? Maybe that tells you more than you want to know about who you really think your enemies are. Who I really think my enemies are. Is it just sports teams? We've got a lot of enemies there, right? NC State, Carolina, Duke, or for me, Alabama. Is that really an enemy? Maybe I better not ask for the answer to that one. Who do we think of when we think of enemies? Is it, and maybe I should say this, do you hate yourself? Do you struggle with realizing that Jesus can love you or does love you? Maybe your greatest enemy is that you hate yourself and struggle to receive the reality that Jesus does love you and cares for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you hate anyone that doesn't look like you or look like me. Or care about what I care about. They don't care what I care about, they're an enemy. If they don't like what I like, they're an enemy. If they don't do what I do, they're an enemy. Don't you feel how polarized the culture that we live in is? You don't think like me, vote like me, act like me. Enemy. It's horrible. That's the world that we live in. And Jesus is calling us to something so much greater, so much greater, so much greater. Look at what Jesus says in verse 46. If you love people that love you, what does that mean? If you welcome brothers and sisters that are your, he's talking about those in the faith, if that's the only people that you're welcoming to, There's a problem. Even tax collectors, like the people that are despised in the first century, like even tax collectors love tax collectors. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to so much more. I'm calling you to something that no one wants to do. Because we all want to love who loves us. We all want to categorize, well, here's people that believe, therefore I want to try to love them, but we don't even do a good job of that, do we? It's pretty observable that 
as Christians, we're pretty capable of despising other Christians and not worrying about it too much. And I say that not because I appreciate that at all. I say it because it's an indictment on us, on me. It is something that I have to think about all the time when I'm talking with people. Jesus is calling us to something so much greater, so much bigger. It's so unique what he is calling us to. That's why it's something beyond. Look at verse 48. There has to be something beyond us. Look at how he finishes this whole section. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's something beyond us, and we'll just say it's perfection. Jesus wants us to be perfect, even as our Father is perfect. Now, just so you know, when Jesus says that we're supposed to be perfect, he's not talking about being without error as much as he is something else. Jesus is communicating the idea to us that he wants us to be a maturing people. He wants us to be a people that are wise and people that are constantly maturing and growing. People that have a whole-souled life. You see, that's why there's this big buildup. Just briefly, especially if you weren't here, go back and read verses 17 to this part. Think about what Jesus has been telling us, and you'll see this climb, this escalating truth that Jesus is communicating. What does a mature person look like? What does it mean to be growing in maturity? This is what Jesus would say. Well, you realize in verse 17 through 20 that I'm the purpose of the entire scriptures. Believe it or not, it takes an awful lot of maturity to recognize that, to see that, and to live by that. It's a whole lot easier to look at the Bible and say, well, what are the moral things I'm supposed to do and then go try to do them? It's much more challenging to read the scripture and say, where is Jesus, isn't it? I've had the truncated view for a while. Perhaps you have too. Jesus is saying a mature person is someone that recognizes that all the scripture is about me. Look at the next section, 21 through 26. A mature person can recognize that they are a murderer. Remember when we talked about that? The next section, a mature person is someone that recognizes they're an adulterer. And it's not just outward things, it's inside that we have a problem. The next section, Jesus talks about being faithful. A mature person is someone who is faithful to the, to the vows that they have made. That's maturity. Jesus continues on. It's not just those things, it's more. It means that when you say something, your word actually means something to people. You say what you mean, and you mean what you say. You're a person of integrity, and we're growing in that. And we live in such, never mind, you know. People say things they don't mean all the time to manipulate and connive, right? Jesus says, not so among my people. How about 38 through 42? We're supposed to be peacemakers. When people slap us, we're willing to turn the other cheek. That's just meaning a mild insult. That whole section is about being a people that are committed to making peace. And all the way up to this, 
love your enemies. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ and to be mature and growing. One of the things that did change my life a number of years ago, I was reading a guy who died hundreds of years ago, and he said this, he made this statement, that growth in the Christian life is not measured in height, but in distance traveled. You've heard me say this before. That growing in the Christian life is not measured in height, but in distance traveled. Meaning, it's not how high I can get that indicates my growing. It's where I've come from. It means that our lives are more about trajectory than arriving. Because we will never get to the point in which until Jesus returns, that we won't struggle with murder and adultery and infidelity and all kinds of things. But Jesus is putting us on a different track. And the something that's beyond us when you think about perfection, I need to tell you this because this is where things get really good. And if you feel like you've just been beaten up with all that Jesus has said, then please don't check out. Hear this. When Jesus says this in verse 48, that you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, let me tell you, it's a promise. Literally what Jesus is saying here is you shall be, you will be. He's making you a promise. He's making me a promise. He's saying this is what is going to happen. You are going to grow. You are going to become more and more mature in all of these ways. You are going to be a whole-souled person just like your father who is completely mature and perfect in that sense and every other sense. Jesus is saying this is a promise you can bank on. If you live your life following me, you will find me in the scriptures. As you study them over the years, you'll realize they're about me. Jesus is saying if you understand Murder and anger, you'll be led to me. And adultery, you'll be led to me. And you'll know more about faithfulness. And you'll know more about integrity. And you'll know more about everything else. You see what's amazing about this? Is that, don't you see we have the best vantage point to understand this passage? We have the best vantage point to understand what Jesus is saying because what Jesus tells those who are there in his original audience is exactly what he did for them. It's exactly what he did for you and me. Did Jesus love his neighbor? Did Jesus love his enemies? That's us. How much did Jesus love his enemies? He laid down his life. Did Jesus ever pray for those who are persecuting him? What did he say when people were putting him to death? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We have the best vantage point to understand these words because they are exactly what Jesus has done for you and for me. Exactly what he did. And what that means 
is because of Jesus, we can love our enemies too. What it means is because Jesus did this for us, we can pray for others. It means because Jesus has done all this for us, we become ambassadors of peace, ambassadors of truth, ambassadors of love for God. It means we get to live in a way that looks really peculiar and strange in the day and age in which we live. Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. I read this this week and thought it was rather helpful. When love doesn't have to wait on others, when love doesn't have to wait on the performance of others, a major transformation has taken place. And beloved, that's the gospel for you and me. God didn't wait on us to change. God didn't wait on us to perform our way to him. God came to us when we were his enemies. Jesus laid down his life. And beloved, that's what leads us to the table.